0: Many of the signature rulings that we have seen, to me, go all the way back to Pauli's notion of human dignity and human equality and authentic selfhood.
1: Hi, and welcome to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court and the rule of law. And I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover those things for Slate Today's show is part of our summer series where we take a step back from the news cycle to talk a little bit about books you haven't read yet, films you haven't seen yet. And this week we wanted to talk about one of the most seminal figures in the last century's civil rights battles for both racial and gender equality, Polly Murray. Later on in the show, Slate's own Mark Joseph Stern will be joining us with the triumphant return of our Slate Plus segment with very much to plow through as the court hands down shadow docket decision after shadow docket decision, particularly this week with two rather horrifying ones. If you are not a Slate Plus member, you can access this and all the other fantastic Slate Plus content. Never hit a paywall at Slate.com by signing up at Slate.com slash Amicus Plus, and it's only $1 for your first month. But now to the main show. If Ruth Bader Ginsburg was known as the Thurgood Marshall of the gender equality movement, I I don't even know what to call Pauli Murray who, believe it or not, I never even learned about in law school. Murray was both the Ginsburg and the Marshal of the race and gender equality movements, doing sit-ins before there were sit-ins, refusing to move to the back of the bus a decade before Rosa Parks. A law school paper that Murray wrote on Plessy versus Ferguson actually became part of the briefing in Brown v. Board of Education. It's just that nobody told or credited Polly Murray. Okay, so now Murray is the subject of a new documentary. It's called My Name is Polly Murray. It premiered at Sundance and will be released by Amazon this fall. My name is Pauly Murray, and my field of concentration has been human rights. My whole personal
2: history has been a struggle to meet standards of excellence in a society which has been dominated by the ideas That blacks were inherently inferior to whites, and women were inherently inferior to men.
1: Murray was far too complicated for any 20th century rubric to contain. Black, non-binary, queer, feminist, and civil rights pioneer, Murray was a poet, a teacher, a legal activist, a white-shoe lawyer, ultimately an Episcopal priest. Murray hung out with Langston Hughes, James Baldwin, had a 23-year friendship with Eleanor Roosevelt, and helped Betty Friedan found the National Organization for Women. My Name is Polly Murray was made by directors Betsy West and Julie Cohen. They made the documentary RBG that helped catapult Justice Ginsburg into the super celebrity stratosphere. Betsy and Julie are joined with me today by Professor Patricia Bell Scott, a consulting producer of My Name is Polly Murray and Professor Emerita of Women's Studies and Human Development and Family Science at the University of Georgia. Her biography, The Firebrand and the First Lady Portrait of a Friendship, Polly Murray, Eleanor Roosevelt, and the Struggle for Social Justice, won the Lillian Smith Book Award. Julie, Betsy, Professor Bell Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> I don't even think my introduction that I just gave, which had so many exclamation marks, begins to do Polly Murray justice. Uh, I feel as though uh, watching the film and doing some reading, Polly Murray is like a where's Waldo of the big major labor, racial, gender movements in this last century except Polly Murray did it a decade before anyone else thought of it and not just in terms of activism but actually constructing legal architecture and I think if you add in Polly Murray's lifelong insistence that she was a man living in a woman's body pleading with doctors to hear her and help her it's clear to me that Polly Murray was not in any category that the 20th century can contain so, Patricia. Can you help just set the table for listeners who've not heard yet of Polly Murray? What the early life was, the education, and all the ways in which these kind of weird constructed boundaries kept throwing up walls.
0: Yes, um, I think when we try to decipher. What resulted in this incredible person to whom we are all so um we are all so indebted, we have to start with her childhood. Polly Murray was a person um who had tremendous uh sensitivity to injustice when she was a child, and i I'm right now using um the pronoun she because she presented as a female, uh, largely as a, as a result of the pressures of social forces and political um, political issues in her life, uh, however, she presented it as a female publicly, however privately uh, and through uh, all of her life, she would be someone we would describe now as someone who was gender queer or we might say uh, that she was gender non-binary. Um, and there is a phrase that some people use that I truly uh, think is appropriate when we think about her in that she is someone who really takes a very ex- expansive View of the human experience, so that she sees herself as both male and female beyond beyond those boundaries. she was of mixed race ancestry ancestry, so she saw herself as beyond just male and female. So when I say she, I don't necessarily mean she in the conventional sense, but I'm using that because that is how she wrote about herself. That is how she presented herself uh, publicly and to people. We have to start with this childhood of a, of a, of a, of, of someone who at age six lodged her first protest against inequality. Over the dinner table, when Aunt Pauline, who became Murray's adoptive mother, was distributing um, the pancakes, and Polly was given one pancake and Grandfather Robert was given three. And she looked at his plate and looked at her plate and decided that it, it was this was not fair. And so she turned to Aunt Pauline and said, Aunt Pauline, why do you give grandfather Robert uh, three pancakes and me only one. Well, uh, the adults uh, at the table really had no answer that they were willing to share with this young woman. And even though it perhaps might've been a question that they had expected her um, to let lie, she didn't. So that um, later when she was at dinner, at they were dinner guests at the home of a of a prestigious family in the community, a black middle class family, and they were uh, being served a meal. And Polly, who was tiny but always ravenous, said, "I'd like to have another helping of meat." Uh, Aunt Pauline said no, and then Polly said, "Well, I still." Feel like I should have another helping of meat. And she insisted. And finally, Aunt Pauline said, uh, Please excuse us to uh, the host, took Pauline in another room, gave Pauline a spanking. And then, when they returned to the dinner table, you would not be surprised to know that this child turned to her Aunt Pauline and the guests and said, I want another helping of meat. So, what we saw was this: what you see in, and this comes from Murray's uh, account of childhood in her memoir, "Some in a Weary Throat," is is uh, an insistence to uh, not be silent in the face of injustice, and a persistence and a determination to question power and authority, whether that authority be on the in the personhood of her older relatives who raised her, or uh, in the presence of the White House, Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt, to whom she wrote hot letters protesting Jim Crow in the South. So early on, we see in Pauli Murray, someone uh, at a very young age Highly sensitive to injustice and very much determined to question it and to persist and accept the consequences, even if the consequences, in one case as a child, was a spanking.
1: And Betsy and Julie, I feel like I want to ask you that initial framing question that Patricia just brought up, which is the the pronouns, because it's clear that throughout the film, um, different speakers are identifying Polly Murray as they, as she kind of trying to honor exactly this theme uh, that Patricia just laid out, that she referred to herself a- as her. Um, how did you all choose to think about this question of pronouns and how Um, it it, it so precedes, it's so out of time. Uh, I'm just wondering how you work that out for yourselves. Maybe, Betsy, you want to go first? Sure. Uh,
2: This was uh, the subject of many, many discussions as we were putting the film together, because as Patricia said, publicly, uh, Polly was presenting as a woman, referred to herself as she, and uh, it was only in... Uh, Polly's diaries and letters that we learned about the struggle that Polly had to get doctors to recognize her. Polly's feeling that Polly was a man, and this was going on in the 30s and 40s when there was no language to describe what Polly was experiencing. Uh, so in the film, we felt that the people who knew Polly, Polly's great uh uh for example and others uh uh friends Ruth Bader Ginsburg knew Polly as a woman and they refer to Polly as she there are uh, Polly has in recent years as the story of Polly's non-binary identity has come out has become a beacon I think for the the trans world and there are certainly people who refer to Polly as they um so we we made an effort to let people uh, speak about Polly in the way that they chose, and but to be sensitive about using the pronoun see, she, her, too to aggressively. Let's put it that way. Julie, do you
1: have something to add?
3: Yeah, I mean, as Betsy says, it's something that we discussed um, in detail as we were making the film, and that kind of shifted over time. Um, you know there's no Polly. while absolutely seeking out hormone treatment um, in, in life, didn't address the pronoun question like the pronoun question was not a question when Polly was alive. So we're kind of left a little bit to want to create a situation where we're not um, being hurtful to today's trans community who are. Many, many of whom identify with Pauly in such a way that it, the, the pronoun uh, they or even he seems preferable. Um, one thing that um, we actually uh, were guided on by um, Chase Strangio, um, the ACLU trans rights uh, lawyer who himself is a trans man, said, you know, some people just use their name as their pronoun. Um, that's what he did to talk about Pauly. So that's we we've, we've tried to find. Uh, to kind of follow that uh, lead, honestly, it's surprising how difficult it is to use not not to s- slip into a female pronoun for someone who you've perceived as a woman because of the way that Pauly, you know, self-presented all throughout life. The fact that it's so hard, I think, is sort of fascinating in and of itself. Um, so, you know, I think we we are fairly uh, accepting of all kinds of different people's choices on this question. Obviously, there's no way to know what poly, um would, would have chosen if, if Polly had had the good fortune to be alive in a time when acceptance of a trans or non-binary identity was even a possibility.
1: Now let's get back to our conversation with the directors of My Name is Pauline Murray, Betsy West, and Julie Cohen, and with consulting producer Professor Patricia Bell-Scott. The other just big table-setting question I had, and I guess this is for Julie and Betsy, um, what is the pivot from making a movie about RBG to making a movie about Polly Murray like because it just is so striking that one is an icon larger than life, known to all. There's a coffee mug in every, you know, every cabinet. And then Polly Murray, who but for dints of accident, dints of race, dints of not having a Marty, uh to 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 push them forward uh, just is almost completely unknown to history. And so you have these two people who, by many metrics, and I want to probe the ways in which they're profoundly different, one is larger than life. One is not in any way been given her place in life. And I'm trying to think about this as a question of sort of who gets famous in America, who gets credit in America. I think Patricia said this essentially important thing, which is Polly Murray spent— her life wanting to be seen and heard, Um, and we didn't give her that. And so I don't exactly know what buried in there what the question is, but it's such an extraordinary move to go from somebody who almost by the end takes up too much space to somebody who doesn't get any space at all. Julie, you're nodding, so I feel like I should let you go first.
3: (laughs) Okay. Uh, I'm nodding because I certainly agree with you. You know, it really actually, though, for Betsy and I, it wasn't exactly a pivot to go from RBG to Pauli Murray. It was a very straight line because it was RBG herself who put Pauli's name on a 1971 Supreme Court brief, the first one that RBG uh, wrote, uh, uh, Reed versus Reed, and Paulie Murray did not specifically work on that case. However, previously, in both a uh, in both a law journal paper and even in a case that Paulie argued in federal court, um, Paulie had made the argument that the Fourteenth Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause could be used to secure gender equality just as it had been used to secure racial equality. Um, this essentially was RBG's argument in Read v. Read and that series of cases that we talk about in our film uh, RBG. And... Um, and RBG took the unusual position that, like, I'm—I actually, am going to give credit where it's due. Uh, RBG was absolutely aware; she she knew Polly from having served together on the board of the ACLU. Actually, previously, they had briefly uh, crossed paths at Paul Weiss, um, where RBG was a summer associate when uh, Polly was a, a full full time ongoing associate, and. Um, RBG had read uh, Polly's legal work, and she just decided, like, why wouldn't I give Polly Murray uh, deserved credit? Very unusual move for a, a Supreme Court litigator, but uh, but RBG went for it.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is Betsy. To add to that, I feel that, yes, RBG was deservedly larger than life. And I think as Julie and I started to research Polly Murray, we realized Polly Murray should be larger than life. I mean, we're just blown away by Polly Murray's story. All of the things that you mentioned at the beginning, all of the accomplishments, the ahead of the timesness of Polly Murray. It just kind of went on and on, and so that it seemed like the logical conclusion to do a film about Polly Murray. The other thing that animated us, I think, was the desire to have Polly be seen and heard, and luckily for us, despite all the challenges in Polly's life, um, you know, economic challenges wasn't, you know, all that well compensated for uh, much of Polly's life, managed to save so much material and so there's a giant archive at the Schlesinger Library at Harvard and that archive includes audio tapes of a series of interviews that were done with Polly most of them in the 70s i think there were a few a little bit earlier and also we our intern helped us track down an audio tape of Polly reading a large portion of Polly's autobiography and when we heard Polly's voice it was speaking to us, like, had been left there for people to discover and to learn the story, unfortunately, after Polly was no longer here. But, you know, that's what, that was really our mission, to bring that story to life. And
1: and Patricia, I feel like you also, because your work was, again, in this relationship between Eleanor, Eleanor Roosevelt and Pauli Murray, this weird, again, the same paradox of people who were fundamentally deeply connected, deeply respectful, deeply transformational. One of them is an icon. Um, The other one was really almost lost to history. And, And I guess I'm wondering if you have a theory of how it is possible that Pauli Murray moving in the circles she moved in, accomplishing what she accomplished, almost kind of slid through history's fingers?
0: Well, I think there are several factors involved. In fact, this, your question reminds me of the, a question that I've heard over and over again from um young people, particularly young law students who are almost in tears and sort of shaking their heads at me and say, how is it that I don't know this? I'm angry that I don't know this. I don't know about uh, this person. And I think there are several factors. Uh, first of all, you ha- I think we have to be mindful of um, the historical context in which she lived, in which... Um, people with her background and her intellect who presented as female and who were lawyers uh, found it very difficult to get heard. Uh, Polly talked about uh, not, not being allowed or being discouraged from speaking in, in classes and the sense to which uh, professors said that there was, there should, there's really no place for a woman in uh, as she presented at that time as as a as an attorney or as a, a legal scholar, so I think some of it was, was the the restrictions and the oppressions uh, that she felt as a as a as a person of color as someone who identified uh, as female. And um, in many ways, we use the term uh, often now intersectionality. poly Murray was the embodiment of that concept. She is a person who knew from personal and professional and um, in every way that one might imagine what restrictions are placed upon one because of race, class, gender, um, and uh, economic background. Uh, And she, she was vulnerable in all of those areas. Uh, there are also some personal factors uh, beyond just those having to do not only with the gender identity, but Polly had an interesting personality. I I, I feel fortunate in that I was able to interview uh, several of her long-term friends and many of them talked about her brilliance, but how impatient she was. And so what that meant was that she might be in a meeting or in a situation where she um, presents uh, really innovative ideas, and the people in the room would uh, be very impressed. But if Polly thought that the people were boring, she would move right along, and what we and and, and leave the idea there, but not seek to to claim it. And so there's a pattern of of a particularly male colleagues, uh, lawyers who would take her ideas and not bother to give her credit. And I'm sure there are many uh, women and people who are marginalized in various settings who've had that experience. Uh, Pauline also, and this is related to her economic vulnerability uh, over the course of her life, was never adequately compensated and for a good portion of her life, uh, suffered young life, suffered from malnutrition. So we end up with a person who is uh, compromised in terms of her physical health, in addition to dealing with gender uh, identity conflict issues. And um, in addition to her impatience, she was someone who really didn't care a whole lot for uh, the hierarchy of institutions and it's within those hierarchies and the people who reside in them, that history is written. And, uh, so when people write the history, wrote the history of the NAACP and continue to do that, uh, because Polly, uh, would offer her ideas, but not stay around to insist that that be part of the minutes, uh, you know is who who writes the minutes really shapes the uh the perception of what actually happened and so that her frustration with uh hierarchies her um uh, her 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 general um um just uh uh Insistence on moving ahead often meant that she was not around to, to claim credit for her ideas. So I, and, and, um, I also think the fact, uh, that she was, More than a lawyer, in many ways, I think there's a a clip in the film where someone is about to interview her or speaking to her and they say something like, oh, we have a a lawyer turned writer. And she says, no, I think you have it wrong. I'm actually a poet who uh, became a writer so that her sense of being a creative person is something else that makes it really hard for some people to get a real sense of her personality because in, in her contributions, because Polly is so huge. In the film, we talk primarily about her as a, as, a, as an activist and a lawyer, a human rights activist. But Polly is huge as a creative writer. I mean, she is a person uh, who I I argue set early precedent in her work as a writer of family history and family memoir. Uh, but in her time, people didn't know what to do with that work because you know, the reviewers said it read like a novel. Now, what do we say now about what we consider to be the best uh memoirs? They're they're they family stories that read like novels. So she was just she was a renaissance person and um she, she was complex. She was huge. She regularly said to her friends, uh, and colleagues, you know, it is my quest to live an authentic life and t- I want to experience the wholeness of life. And for, for Polly, that meant moving forward on multiple terrains. And so she, she just didn't approach life in a narrow, straight line and, uh, Many people found that hard to 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 believe and to process.
1: Patricia, I love what you just said, because you've preempted my ninth question, which is, in all caps, ask about the poetry, because the poetry is kind of like the soundtrack of this film, and I think you have to just stop and sit for a minute with how exquisite her poems are, because, you know, I was watching it as a lawyer and as somebody who was really, really got very excited when we started talking about the 13th and 14th Amendments, but the poetry is it's breathtaking. And uh, it's just, I, I'm trying to imagine, you know, the the poems of Stephen Breyer, the poems of Antonin Scalia, like we don't think of them in those terms. And I guess I want to ask, um, I, I guess this is for, for Julie or Betsy, but it's so clear that we are talking about somebody who is so outside the scope of I'm a worker bee and I really, really, you know, by the way, I, you know, wrote the spine of Brown v. Board years earlier and never got credit. But all these other lifetimes she's lived, it's almost as though by the time the civil rights movement catches up to her in the 60s. She's moved on to the next thing. You know, by the time sit-ins have caught up to her, she's moved on to the next thing. It's just freakishly capacious, this this kind of imagination and worldview. This
2: is Betsy. I, I think that um, at the beginning of putting the documentary together— um, Julie and our producer, Talea Bridges-McMahon, and I were not intending to include as much poetry as wound up in the final film. It was really when our editor, Cinque Northern, put together the sequence in the film about uh, Polly's childhood and then the the looming... Fear and backdrop of Polly's life, where lynchings were on the rise, and you know it was such a devastating um, sequence. And then he, and then he, he edited together the poem about uh, her experience of of slavery. Crush us. Which of course then ends with a kind of, but we will we will rise. I've forgotten the exact words, but it's so it was so moving that then we realized at various points in the film that it could be a good idea to include some of the the moments of Polly's poetry because to us it did take it to another level. I mean, she was, you know, very profound. Um
3: yeah, this is Julie. Pauly actually said in um, some an, an interview that we listened to that, given the choice um, of all of Pauly's many identities, writer was actually the, the most um, the most important and. Um, if it hadn't been for one after another after another obstacle that was placed, you know, along the path of of life, like Polly would have just been an artist and a writer and would have written this incredible poetry, memoirs, short stories, novels, uh, journalism, because there were a number, and you know, taken uh, photographs because Polly was a very skilled uh, still photographer. But you know, when you're being kept out of Colleges and graduate schools and institutions, uh, both because of your race and your gender or perceived gender, like you sort of got to fight those things. Or when you're having, you know, the the struggles that so many people were having in terms of, uh, you know, wor- workers' uh, rights, c- because Paulie had a number of of uh, jobs in the in a, in the circumstance, you know, particularly in the 1930s where workers were being treated horrendously and. Polly felt like there was really no choice but to join the labor movement, the civil rights movement, to not only join, but be a part of forming the women's rights movement. Um, so that that actually takes away from your writing time. Um, but if this is what Polly was able to write you know, with all of these things in, you know, standing as obstacles, like just like, like imagine, I mean, like, and actually Polly was relatively prolific, Um, even with all these other, you know, complete careers.
1: I actually want to follow up for one quick second, Julie, because it, it strikes me that, again, in contrast with Justice Ginsburg, who made Again, she was between historic moments, right? She it, it was too late for her to march. She didn't want to march. like by the time the the woman's movement was taking off, she was almost outdated. She certainly wasn't doing direct action. She wasn't uh, doing sit-ins. Polly Murray, really interestingly was both a legal architect and you know you have some sense that she she couldn't even be contained by that and so then she really is um uh, uh doing you know the sit-ins and 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 i wonder if there's some it, it's really striking that years before rosa parks she refuses to move to the back of the bus She gets hauled off the bus and put in jail. She connects with the NAACP. There's a moment at which it looks like she could be the plaintiff. And then the case just vaporizes. It's dismissed on other grounds. I wonder if there's a way in which even when she's trying to be visible by resisting injustice, sometimes she gets erased. It's just such an interesting um, story that even when sometimes when she's trying, again, to go back to Patricia's opening, to just be seen and heard uh, so frequently, you get the sense she doesn't even get the merit of having protested these things.
2: This is Betsy. I mean, I think... You know the the bus arrest is such an interesting story because it starts out uh, with Polly and a friend just going down to visit Polly's family, and as Polly says, we did not intend to protest these uh, segregationist laws, but there are times when you just have no choice. Polly saw the injustice. Uh, being asked to go and sit in a broken seat when there were available seats. And and so Polly was going to stand up for herself and for her friend. The dismissal of that case is kind of interesting. I mean, the resolution of the case, Thurgood Marshall was involved in defending her. There's been some question about whether or not uh, Polly and her friend were perceived to be too odd perhaps to make a good test case. Uh, and it's also the question of the 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 judge himself who who saw that maybe I don't want to go there so he dismissed the charges that would have given you know the NAACP grounds to take it take it to a higher route but yes, that was a sort of missed opportunity. Polly then went on to uh, actively protest, The segregation of restaurants near Howard University at Howard Law School, which was another, you know, activism. And again, these things were covered in the black press, but they weren't. (laughs) Nobody else knew about them, you know. So many years before the movement gained the traction and and people started to pay attention. I don't know if that's because of the of of television of the the pictures that we could see of the, the protesters in the 1960s, and we didn't have that earlier. Or, you know, I'm sure that historians have many other factors for why these earlier protests, and Polly wasn't actually the only person doing this. There's evidence that, that many African Americans had refused to go to the back of the bus, had, had had protested injustices, but these were, they were sort of considered isolated incidents. Uh, before the I guess the modern civil rights movement.
0: This is Patricia. Uh one of the things that impressed me when I as I followed uh the story of Pauli's uh life as a lawyer was that she reached the point where uh she was reviewing her career, reviewed her career as uh Polly reviewed her career as a lawyer and Wrote uh, in a journal that she uh, had gotten to the point where she was questioning how um, much of her time and energy she had put into uh, being a lawyer because, and not to say that she wasn't very appreciative of all the strides that had been made, but she said that um, lawyers are focused primarily on the facts and writers or poets which is which was the, the, the her dream with the dream job she 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 uh preferred her identity was poets uh were focused on the truth so um as opposed to lawyers who were focused on facts and if you read the collection of Polly's poetry I think that is where she comes closest to expressing the fullness of her identity because you do not have to read too closely to see her uh, love of another person, presumably a woman. You don't have to read too closely to see her disappointment uh, in um uh, in, in prior relationships. It it's all I think it's all there. And it was in the creative writing where you see her working very seriously and diligently to the on the expression of issues of identity and feeling that the law is can can be a restraining force. And I I think um I think so often now uh, about the fact that as Polly moved into midlife, the The career or the job that she coveted most was a position on the Supreme Court. Now, let me ask you, what do you think the court would be like if we could be so privileged to have a Polly Murray Associate Justice? She very much wanted to uh, and felt that she was qualified and deserved to be considered for such a post and wrote President Nixon and said uh, when they were considering when there was a a position open that she was ready and available and that if he wanted to nominate a woman uh, that she was ready and available.
1: Probably Nixon wasn't her guy, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yes,
1: yes. But before we leave that, two things that strike me, Patricia. One is... So amazing that she was talking about dignity as a constitutional right protected in the 13th and 14th Amendment. I mean, that, that was way before I started hearing Justice Kennedy and Justice Ginsburg talking about dignity. So there's a way in which just as she just saw the inherent weakness in separate but equal. She was like, I'm not going to sit here and waste my time making equal facilities. This is about human dignity. There's a way in which in all the ways that she's ahead of her time, she really sees the Constitution as a document that is promoting equal dignity long before Obergefell, long before Justice Kennedy is writing it in. And it does seem to me that it's another way in which she's just so boundlessly ahead of her time.
0: Absolutely. So so foundational, so that many of the signature rulings... um, that we have seen recently to me go all the way back to Polly's notion of of human dignity and, and human equality and authentic selfhood. So yes, that undergirds Brown, it undergirds uh the civil the civil rights um uh the civil rights work of the sixties and and her fight to ensure that Title Seven, which would include uh sex as a category in that bill. Uh, She almost single-handedly saved that by uh, uh, drafting a memorandum that was sent to every congressperson, uh, to Attorney General Robert Kennedy, and she and a network of women activists got that memorandum to Lady Bird Johnson with a cover letter in which Pauline Murray said, you know, Women are being discouraged from speaking out about this, but I want you to know that the bill without the sex amendment uh, in it would mean that uh, only Black men would have uh, equal protection and not Black women. And she was on edge until she got a note from Lady Bird's social secretary, in which it said that the the that Lady Bird had shared the argument with her husband, President Johnson, and that um and that the amendment would the bill would remain as as it was. So the other thing about uh, paul I am going back to an earlier question you raised about her, um, uh, about how her contributions are just not forefront. In the forefront, and there's another part of person, her personality that uh, kind of it's it's confusing in the sense that here's a person with these bold ideas, but temperamentally shy, an introvert in many ways, and um, you know she would call you out, but interpersonally shy, so that when now is formed Polly Murray w- was comfortable with the idea of Betty Friedan being the national spokesperson who uh represented the newly found uh, national organization for women in in with the media and the larger uh community so i think it is polly murray's shyness too that has contributed somewhat to the extent that she is not identified with projects and organizations for which she clearly is one of the founders.
1: We'll be back in just a moment with more about Polly Murray's life and legacy in the law with the directors of my name is Polly Murray, Betsy West and Julie Cohen and consulting producer Professor Patricia Bell Scott. But first a few brief messages from our sponsors. And and before we leave the law, I want to give um Betsy or Julie or both of you a chance to just talk about this arc because I think Patricia sort of laid out she gets really interested in the law. She feels that this is the vehicle for bringing about Um, you know, massive social change, as we've suggested now a couple times. Her name is on the brief in Reed v. Reed. Uh, She ends up, although totally uncredited, uh, uh, doing some of the the work that becomes the foundation of Brown v. Board. Um, All of this happens, and she she presumably could find a life in the law. Um, And yet, in the end, and this is, I, I, I can't, help but contrast her to RBG, RBG lashes herself to institutions. She lashes herself to the ACL youth. She then lashes herself to the Federal Appeals Court and then the Supreme Court. There's a way in which—and I guess I'm just so curious about this— I think Patricia makes this point that Polly gets really frustrated with institutions that aren't moving fast enough, that are blinkered, that um, are just not getting it done quickly enough. And I can't help but want Um, again, either Betsy or Julie, for you to walk me through this counterfactual where if she had stuck with some institution, if she had just said, I rise and fall, either with the courts or the universities or some institution, that this might have been an easier road for her. Or if just the institution of the law itself in the end wasn't enough for her the way it was enough for RBG.
3: Yeah, this is Julie. I, I mean, I think uh, the easy road was really not of much interest to Polly Murray. I think you know that's at the sort of at the premise of all this. Um, Polly said uh, on a number of occasions that that Polly was super interested in being at the vanguard of all kinds of different movements. Once others joined in and wanted to take up that fight then Polly was ready to move on to the next thing I mean we, we love the moment in our film where Eleanor Holmes Norton who was a classmate of, of Polly when Polly was getting doctorate at Yale Law School and Eleanor Holmes Norton was uh, a, a JD student um, you know, Eleanor Holmes Norton and some of the other black Yale law students were out there, you know, fighting for civil rights as people were in the 1960s. And Polly, at that by that point really was most interested in talking about feminism and which was, you know, not a known, uh, not a very well-known concept in the early 60s. And basically, um, Eleanor Holmes Norton just said, we were all like, what are you what are you talking about, uh, uh, Um, you know? Polly liked to liked being way ahead of the curve and was willing to do that, maybe at the expense of becoming uh, a central figure in a movement that Polly stuck with over a course of, of, of decades. I mean, there's a great moment where Polly says, I, I like to think that I have lived and will live more to see my lost causes found. Um so even if it wasn't Polly that was gonna drag something over the finish line, if Polly started something and then it moved forward you know, with or without Polly, then that's still a victory.
2: I mean, there's, I think that Patricia captured this, but there's a restlessness to Polly Murray. And you see that, that always pushing, always going to the next thing, finally gets to Paul Weiss, uh, has a measure of stability, meets a partner, and yet is not satisfied with being a corporate lawyer uh, that's, you know, and then just gives it all up to go and explore what is going on in Africa with some of the independence movements in Africa, and then uh, returns to the United States and is, uh, you know, on to feminism now. And then finally the the move that surprised Polly's friends and family the most after the death of Polly's uh. Uh, partner, Rini, turns to religion, turns to spirituality, and people just cannot believe that Polly is going to go to theology, you know, in her 60s, basically, go to theology school uh, and become an Episcopal priest. It's just unfathomable, but to Polly, in a way, it made sense because it's like she had exhausted what she could do with the law and felt Uh, that the spiritual satisfaction of ministering to people uh, would, would be more important.
0: I would like to add uh, uh, just a couple of things. And that is that it's important for us to remember that the opportunities RBG had were not available to Pauli. So, um, RBG did get into into Harvard, Pauli was denied. After Pauli got the Masters of Law from UC uh, uh, Berkeley and after she got the doctorate from Yale, she very much wanted to become a law professor. She did not have that opportunity, never had that opportunity here. When she finally returned from Africa, um and finished the law degree the doctorate in in law at uh, at Yale she um she, she you know she she took she finally got a job in a university teaching but she never got to teach law full time she taught law part time at Boston University so her, because of her restlessness, she, um, she was always moving forward, but there were doors that were closed to her. And so she was not willing to, 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 to keep waiting and agitating to, to get the doors completely open. She cracked the door and RBG and other women and other people of color were eventually able to, to walk through. So we cannot forget, you know, the limitations uh, placed upon her by the strictures of the time.
1: That's so important. I'm so glad you said it, because I think in some sense... Even when she lashed herself to institutions, they let her down. I mean, I think you know her. Her attempting to get tenure at Brandeis—it's an extraordinary set of stories. Of no matter what she did, it wasn't good enough. Um, I also just want to point out: in all my years of this podcast, my husband, the sculptor, has never handed me a note, but he handed me a note as I was taping. It says, "Polly Murray was an artist, not an institutionalist." Um, And so that you know, when when we think about RBG as somebody who put the friendship with Scalia, put the institution of the law, put All her anger stuffed it in a box, never burned a bridge, never, ever uh, uh, turned her back on an ally. Uh, She was an institutionalist. We are living in a moment where we have such grievous doubts about institutions and institutionalism. I almost wonder if that's why Pauli Murray is having a moment, because the compromises one has to make for institutions are starting to feel like they don't necessarily pay off. I'm going to ask just one last question before I let you go. Although I want you all to know that I've got about thirty more that I would love to ask, but but I I feel like we should talk a little bit about just Polly Murray's kind of pain and brokenness because it is so pervasive through the movie that um, you know Polly is imploring physicians for help is imploring. Uh, uh, somebody to sort of see and understand how sad she is and, you know, how difficult it is. And at the same time, I think at the end, you get some sense that that is healed when she finds the church and that, um, as Patricia says, there's something about that turn to God and to to spirituality. I love at the end of the film where— you get the sense that she becomes a listener uh, and not a talker. And I wonder if there's some guidance in there for any of you about um, what it is that she needed and what it is that the law failed to give her that toward the end of her life, she got by kind of turning inward and turning upward.
3: Wow. Um, You know, I think, like in many ways, Polly felt like the law was just too small and that the big questions of like seeking justice and seeking neighbors that love and respect one another and the dignity that all human beings deserve, like in the end, are those really legal questions or are they spiritual questions? Of course, this wasn't coming out of the blue at all. Polly was very much raised in the church and had such a deep closeness to the aunt who was actually an adoptive mother, um, Aunt Pauline, that that sort of placed Polly in a deep sense of strength. And even though, I mean, pain is right, um, I'm not sure I'm going along with brokenness, though, because Polly was pretty unbreakable. There was a lot that happened throughout Polly's life that could have just crushed Polly right in half. And that's just never quite what happened.
0: I'm thinking of um, one of the responses she gave one of her friends who and there's a couple of people in the in 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 the film who when they're asked you know if they knew that she was on her way to the priesthood or they knew how that she would become a priest and you know many of them say no and I when I interviewed her friends um Several of them said to me, "I had no idea," and their major concern was here she was resigning this named professorship at Brandeis um, to, uh, um, to 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 go into the them- go into the seminary at a time when the church had not decided whether or not the church had not voted to ordain women when Polly entered. Uh, the seminary. And she said to this friend, You know, I think the missing element is theological. And she was thinking about issues of dignity. She was talking about issues of dignity and justice. She wasn't, she was, say, she was saying that the law was important, but that the missing element in her life was theological. So, uh, and as Julie uh, just said, religion, being uh, Episcopalian uh, was very much part of Pauli Murray's core. She was like sixth or seventh generation uh, Episcopalian. So this was uh, a very deep part of of, of who she was. And it, it, it is my sense that it was in later years, uh, in later life that Polly Murray felt that there was acceptance on the, I mean, there were people along the way who had always been accepting, um, Aunt Pauline was just incredible, uh, Aunt Pauline referred to Pauly as my boy girl, um, Eleanor Roosevelt was accepting i I had never discovered any letters of correspondence between them that suggested that there was a discussion about uh sexuality or or gender identity, but I had the strong sense that Eleanor knew who Polly was, and Polly knew that Eleanor knew who she was, and she just felt tremendous. Acceptance and that relationship became a surrogate uh, mother-daughter relationship that was very important to to Polly Murray's sense of well-being. So this sense of finding community and acceptance in others became um, became it it was pronounced as in in mid and later life, uh, and um, and so. I guess I feel that the decision to move into the ministry was evidence of her healing and her desire to be, as her niece says, a listener in support of the healing of others, which I think is important.
2: You know, uh, this is Betsy. Just one thing to add, I, when you start to make a film, you don't know what discoveries you're going to make. And one of the most amazing discoveries was something that Julie found in the Schlesinger library that had been sort of misfiled. It wasn't with the Polly Murray uh, collection, but it was an interview that a young woman had done, a woman named Lynn Conroy, putting together a feminist syllabus and um, interviewed Polly Murray in Polly's priest collar sitting at the desk working at the typewriter and uh we were of course thrilled to have this video we had a lot of audio tapes but to have video the thing about it that is to me was so wonderful in addition to seeing polly's relationship with one of polly's beloved dogs who keeps you know barking and she get down she gets down roy and but was was polly's smile I mean, it was just a beautiful beautiful one just welcoming, fantastic smile. And, you know, we used it throughout the film to give a sense of who this person was. And certainly at that point, Polly seems happy. Oh, I'm so, so, so-
1: I'm glad you said that, Betsy, because I also um, was so struck by that beatific smile. It just was uh, really quite visceral um, how uh, this is somebody who had really found peace. Uh, The film is My Name is Polly Murray. It premiered at Sundance. It will be released by Amazon this fall. It was made by directors Betsy West and Julie Cohen, who made the phenomenal path-breaking documentary, RBG. Uh, And Professor Patricia Bell Scott was a consulting producer on the film. She is Professor Emerita of Women's Studies and Human Development and Family Science at the University of Georgia. Her biography, The Firebrand and the First Lady, Portrait of a Friendship, Polly Murray, Eleanor Roosevelt, and the Struggle for Social Justice, won the Lillian Smith Book Award. I cannot... Uh, thank the three of you enough, both for your time today, but also really for helping excavate and bring to life something that Patricia said at best. I cannot believe how angry I am that nobody told me about this in law school. Thank you so, so much uh, for joining us today. Thank, thank you. Thank Dan. you. Thanks, Dahlia. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so, so much for listening in. And thank you for your letters and your comments and your feedback and questions. You can always keep in touch at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicuspodcast. And if you can, please do rate us and leave a review on whatever platform you may be listening on. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. We had research help from Daniel Malouf. Gabriel Roth is editorial director. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We will be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks.